the belief that you deserve to be loved, I don't say that quite easily. I've talked about warmth. I've talked about affection. I rarely spoke of love in organizations, and certainly it is one of our most powerful emotions and a way to maybe be provocative around the conversation of what it means to value others, to not see them as an element of production, I think, as you so keenly observed, and rather to see the person first by saying hello. Welcome. I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. In our last episode, Brandon Harding talked about the importance of humanity in leadership, and especially within the context of the military. As a military chaplain with three tours in Iraq and a couple of decades of experience, Brandon was able to lead actually a very insightful and deep conversation and bringing up many of his experiences. So I would encourage you to go and check out that episode. Our guest today is Mike Horn. Mike is a leadership coach who focuses on bringing change to both people and organizations. He draws on over 30 years of experience leading human resources in major life science and technology companies. He's the author of the book, Integrity by Design, Working and Living Authentically. And he's also a fellow podcaster. He hosts and produces a show called Authentic Change. We're passionate about the same topic, so we came up with this idea. Why not have an extended conversation about authenticity across both podcasts? So if you are here because you just listened to our conversation on Mike's podcast, welcome. And if you're starting your journey in this conversation here, Make sure that once you're done listening to this episode, you go and check out episode one of season two of Authentic Change, Mike's podcast. Enjoy. Mike, it's great to have you on this episode as part of our grandiose experiment to launch the season two of your podcast, Authentic Change with Mike Horn. These two episodes are launching on the same day, so you can catch the other half of this conversation on Mike's podcast authentic change, or maybe this is the second half of the conversation that you're catching, whatever it is. I'm very excited to have Mike here with me. We share the dubious distinction of having the podcast that are titled with the most abused word in management right now. We're both authentic, but hopefully through the course of the conversation, you will see that when Mike says authentic, there's actually teeth and there's actually true meaning behind what he says. So Mike, why don't we start by introducing you to my listeners, our listeners, and sort of story of your career. You're now a a consultant, but you actually have spent a lot of time in real life building organizations and helping companies build great organizations and great cultures. Dino, I'm delighted to uh, be here with you today in this virtual studio. I was thinking as you made a comment about authentic or authenticity or authentic leadership being uh, an overused term, my early mentor, Warren Bennis, who was a prolific commentator and writer on leadership, said in what I, I think was one of his more cynical moments that never has so much been written about so little. 
referring to leadership. And sometimes I wonder if that holds true with authentic leadership and authentic management and showing up authentically. And yet, I think the core to uncovering the authentic self is what we often are, you know, people who write in this field, people who uh, speak in this field, people who are thinking about it, uh, all of us who experience it, is figuring out what is self-awareness and how do we unlock it so that we don't see ourselves concentrating on fixing deficits as important as they are, but rather we focus on goals that take us to new places, to see ourselves as both subject and object. That is great. How did you get where you are here? Uh, you want, why don't you share with our listeners a little bit about your career, your journey, and then I think you're on the verge of publishing a book too, right? Book uh, was released in May, so just a few months ago, and look forward to another Mike Horn book uh, soon, perhaps towards the end of next year or the beginning. Integrity by Design, Working and Living Authentically. So that's uh, less than six months out in the marketplace. And I'm delighted to share the ideas from that and to really move it into the realm of what does authenticity mean today? What does it mean for leaders? What does it mean in organizations? How does it work itself through the evolving uh, world of work? And you asked me another question. How did I get here? Yes. (laughs) You know, maybe the better question is where am I going? (laughs) However you want to think about that, you know, because when I focus on where am I going, I get to think about everything that I'm worried about, I'm concerned about, I'm excited about, I'm hopeful about. My historical reflection, (laughs) you know, unfortunately, I can't do much about the the baggage I have or the luggage I have, except to learn from it. And I, you know, hopefully that's what I've been, that is what I am doing. In short, I am a coach, mentor, and teacher. I am interested in intersections of all sorts, intersections in interpersonal relationships, the intersection of self with feedback, the intersection of people in groups, the intersection of uh, employees and authority in organizations. One of my dearest mentors, Charlie Seashore, said, and it's guided most of my career, that all intersections in life can be improved. (laughs) You know, there's nothing like standing in the middle of an intersection. And and, and I think so much of that can be applied to the work that was at the foundation of what I do based on the humanistic values espoused by Lewin. I might think of myself as a a Lewinian social psychologist. So growing out of that uh, era of understanding, having an appreciation for what we carry into the workplace as as well as what we carry with us. That's great. And I was thinking specifically, of course, you have like a great academic background and a lot of thinking and reflection, but, you know, unlike many other people with great academic backgrounds, you have also actually lived it for a large part of your career working with organizations. So I'm wondering if you think about the practical side of your career, not the practical, but like the time when you were part of organizations, What was the process of figuring out your view on leadership and what were some like moments that were aha moments for you? My earliest work experiences were with the United Farm Workers Union as a lettuce boycotter. 
and helping the UFW organize and encourage consumers at that time to create better standards of living and work for folks. So I was interested in that uh, early on. That led to a, a lot of interest in labor relations. I think what you learn in labor relations is that we're often enacting these roles, manager, union, representative, as a way of bringing a cord out of some conflict. I look for a richer experience in that in terms of how do we do that in commercial enterprises. So I've consulted to companies around the world as well as led human resources in some big organizations. So these themes about coaching and mentoring and teaching, I mean, that, that's what uh, arises for me. Yeah. And the human resources role, I always find is one of the most complex roles in any organization, because that's where you're really the best human resources people that I know are always in some ways advocating against themselves because they're advocating on behalf of the employee when they're relating with the organization. And then they're advocating on behalf of the organization when they're dealing with the employees. So what were some of the lessons that you got from being in that role? And what do you think makes a successful HR person? What are the qualities that they need to have? I've always had a love-hate relationship with HR. I've been in and around it for a while. And as I think about my love-hate relationship with it, so much of it is transactional. There's a lot that's dictated by the systems in which we try and keep track of people and meet regulatory requirements relative to employment. And the kinds of systems that are available and used in you know, many substantive organizations, more gets devolved to managers now, right? To people managers, which is a good thing. And yet sort of managing all the underlying infrastructure that goes along with that and making sure that people get paid the right amount of money, um, making sure that promotions are, and that's a lot of transactional work in human resources and the leadership work of, uh, or the partnering work uh, is certainly an attractive element, I think, for the right people who bring an insight into leadership and organization, which are really, you know, just different sides of the same coin. And so as you transitioned out of traditional corporate world and started in your own leadership and organizational consulting and development practice, what were some of the of the goals that you had? And like, you know, what were some of the what you hope to achieve, you know, now that you were freed up from the transactional side of it, if you will? Yeah, in uh, one of my earliest go-arounds as an independent consultant, you realize that that doesn't have much truth or ring to it. I mean, everything is interdependent and you depend on clients. So working primarily as a diversity and inclusion consultant earlier, along with a great team of colleagues with whom I worked, we helped build at that time the most uh, diverse board of a Fortune 250 company. We did a lot of work in one of the largest petroleum companies on a set of leadership principles right below the CEO level. And so an opportunity always to think about these intersections, about making things better, not in a rehabilitative sense, but in a way of making progress. And 
I believe that's one of the keys to engagement. I also uh, ha- am attracted to quantification and analytics. I uh, created, I think, what was in, in the pharmaceutical industry, the first uh, workforce analytics group had uh, hired uh, several PhDs in IO psychology and really tried to do some primary research to understand different factors that were important um, to participation in the organization, always striving with the goal, right, in terms of those uh, Lewin's values around how do we create more participative systems and how do we create more, how do we bring more democracy to systems? And that's antithetical to most organizational experience, I think. (laughs) (laughs) At the end of the research, what were some of your findings? Like if you were thinking about the the two or three things that leaders in this specific context that we're in right now should be looking at. Sure. The first of at least two or three, the first is to care. Yeah. If you don't care about, again, you, you know, referring to another mentor, EDC, sure. I remember being in a leaderless group, conventional T group, and somehow a topic came up and I said, well, I really don't care about that. And, you know, the great uh, facilitative question, well, what if you did care? <laughs> you know, which opens up a whole world of reframing and possibility. So I think that's one of the things uh, to be guided about is in leadership, you've got to care. Lots of people don't. Have you ever experienced, Dino, a manager who really doesn't take an interest in you? I think it's common that we see, you know, many others in our workspaces and organizations as elements of production. I just need this from you. Just get it done. And But I asked you a question. Yeah, I, I'm going to take the fifth on one, but the answer is generally yes. But what's interesting to me, and, and, and let me know if you have the same experience or like if you have observing your clients. Ultimately, it's important to have the managers who don't care about you because it makes you realize how valuable and how profound the ones that do care about you are. You know, the people who actively take an interest in your development, the people who advise you to take paths within your organization that will advance your career, even if it's a short term loss for their department or their product. You know, I I think that that is what I, you know, that is what I appreciate. And the best part is that when you look back on your career, if you have the maturity to do it, you realize that the people who cared the most about you were the one that gave you the toughest feedback, right? And they gave it to you in a direct and non-personal way. I have this manager, fabulous manager who's been a, a guest on the podcast, David Edelman. And I remember was a super eager early when you start moving up like those second or third tiers of management in, in a service organization. And I remember him sitting me down and say, Dino, not everybody needs to know that you're the smartest guy in the room. Shut up. <laughs> and it wasn't as direct, you know, it wasn't like he didn't say shut up, but like the explanation as to like, you need to let other people talk. I know that you have a lot of the right answers, but you will get a lot more done if you let other people have the same answer. And it was hard for me because, you know, I was early. I was very excited about who I was. Does that answer your question? Yes. And what, why, what I often wonder is, um, 
you know, why does it persist? So let's get back to your question though, about you know, number two. two or three. <laughs> right. <laughs> number two is you've got to do something. You just can't sit there. Yeah. Well, maybe sitting there might be the action that you have to take, but you've got to make that known then. Caring is one thing, but beyond caring, you got to do something. You got to take action. So did, can we reframe that to be intentional and proactive? Sure. Yeah. Perfect. All right. And do we, do we have a number three? If I was uh, to go on to a number three, it would be to echo many of the themes from integrity by design. Mm -hmm. And it would be a little bit of a longer list, but it would include elements such as this. Tell the truth. Be honest. Don't cheat or skimp. I think those would be the, you know, three of the things that would come under that third bullet is generally, if it can be found out, it will be found out. There aren't many secrets in organizations. So to be honest, uh, to understand uh, differences between honesty and transparency and uh, how all of that combines, don't cheat. Recognize the person in front of you. I mean, you've got some remarkable time together. You don't know what's going to happen five minutes next, right? We've gone from sort of all this certainty to a little more uncertainty. So think about being generous, to being grateful, to not cheating out on your interaction with another person because of what you perceive as their shortcomings, but rather to have gratitude for them. And so that's in the whole realm of don't cheating. You know, it's beyond, you know, taking a ream of paper or something, if, you know, if office buildings still exist or shorting out on your time somehow. <laughs> I'm actually intrigued by something that you said a little while ago is like the difference between honesty and transparency. Can you elaborate on that? Sure. In certain situations, well, and all, all situations require us to be honest. And what we have to do is to know what confidences are held dear. So if I, you know, if I'm working with you as a coworker and, you know, Dino, you tell me about something about, you know, one of your children or your personal health or a situation that you're dealing with and your coworkers begin to wonder about your declining productivity or lack of interest, what do you do? Oh, Dino told me, no, 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 right? So knowing when to be honest, maybe you could talk with Dino, right? Or thinking about ways that you can be supportive of that environment without breaking a confidence or a trust. Trust is an eroding topic in organizations. And one thing, you know, I know is that when a manager doesn't tell the truth, I mean, trust erodes. Yep. And if I don't think you have trust, I won't think you have integrity. And if trust is at the basis for this most overused word of authenticity and authentic leadership, I mean, we've been doing a very bad job of it. 70%, uh, according to Gallup, 70% of engagement is within managerial control. And the importance of having a, a best friend at work, someone who has your back, someone who you know helps you with a feeling of being in on things. I mean, these make a huge difference in terms of engagement. So we also know that people get promoted in organizations because of their technical competence. Right. I mean, they've been a stellar scientist and engineer. I mean, those are the people I know I've worked with, a stellar financier. And we know that great technical skills don't equate to great leadership. 
And despite, you know, 60 years of social science research that confirms, (laughs) 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 I think we still have a lot of really bad managers given most indicators of satisfaction evidenced more recently by the big quit, the great resignation that's underway, the dawning of the four-day work week. Uh, You know, people want to escape bad managers. I have a lot of questions for you on this that this has stimulated. One thing that intrigues me is, and let me see if this resonates with you, I think that we have such an obsession with productivity and tangible skills that intangible skills are underrated within organizations. And they're underrated in two ways. There's not enough investment in the development of intangible skills. And also there is undervaluing of people who may be really strong on the intangible skills that get, that enable the people with the tangible skills to perform at the expense of people with intangible skills. What's your perspective on this thought? Productivity is a concern in all organizations. Measures of productivity vary. I worked early on in a productivity consulting firm. And essentially, I was on the behavioral side of productivity consulting. So working with managers to understand patterns in work and how that influenced their managerial style. But essentially what this firm did is they helped the employer to reduce the workforce by a third. Their promise was, you know, for every million dollars of investment, you'll get a three to one return. So a lot of that was done through, you know, rescheduling labor, reshifting labor, understanding processes and improving process in businesses that were often at razor thin margins. You go to a big pharmaceutical company and you'll find, you know, margins completely different, different environments, go some tech startups, frugality rules often, uh, and how you think about directing the resource commitments to customers. So I I think it's always been about what and how. Uh, It's been about a blend of process and task. And to get that balance right in the transformation of inputs into an organization through some unique transformative process that results in great outputs to, or, you know, to the world that result in the production of value. You can't get things done without people. Yes. Though I have heard executives with whom I have worked, unfortunately, say, you know, if we could figure out a way to make money, Mike, without people, we would do it. I think that a lot of people, unfortunately, share that point of view. But so what, what's interesting, the second part is I know you work with executives at very different levels within organizations. And we talked earlier about intersections. And there are many intersections in people's career as they progress up the leadership ladder, if you will. What do you think are the most challenging transitions or intersections that people face within a career? Well, the first is scale, you know, moving from being a manager to being a manager of managers. I mean, that often introduces a new set of complexity. Also, the first time manager. And you might think about that even at the CEO level as a new CEO into an organization, but somebody who's managing for the first time in an environment. That's often a great six months into it or a year into it, a great opportunity for reflection, coaching, direction 
or, you know, moving into it. So I think one is just this whole question of scale. I mean, that's often when people arrive at coaching because of a change in uh, a role. Second is around feedback that they haven't received or haven't been able to hear or maybe curtailing their progress. And that, you know, needs to be pursued in a developmental context. Third are environmental changes, family situations, personal situations, leadership changes in organizations, navigating that complexity. And I think there's a fourth category is those who are interested in growth, about doing something differently with themselves and with their team. And having that ability to identify what they're worried about, what they're concerned about, and what their goals are, and why maybe everything that's made them successful is something that we ought to explore. Yeah. So if if somebody who's listening right now is on the, if we pick, you know, let's say the transition, let's just pick two of this transition, like the first time manager first, and then the going from manager to manager of many. So what should be a couple of things that somebody in each one of those two transitions should be thinking about or watching for? The first time I was the manager, and maybe the last time I was the manager, I was horrible. <laughs> I hope I got better. <laughs> the first time I was the manager, I know I was horrible. <laughs> uh, I was a micromanager. And that persisted, I think, you know, through some time in managing and leading people. You, you set the bar high. You set your bar for excellence. You know, I remember one time just reworking something right in front of somebody. And it wasn't, you know, I got a big lesson there. So moving from micromanaging, I think as you begin to scale and span, you you come to a new belief that there are many ways to get to a good outcome. And once you accept that, you really begin to open up, I think, to attracting diverse people and diverse ideas around you so that there are many hows or many ways to do things. And it's great that there are. So that would be one for the first time manager. How about the going from manager to scale? I think the questions that occur on moving from manager to managing others are how do I read all of the new people with whom I have a reporting relationship, skip levels? How do I understand my own team of direct reports as well as how do I understand the stars, the talent, uh, the challenges of those in different reporting relationships. And with some of my um, executive clients, that's become a concern recently because they feel they're, you know, we work on the relationships with their team so that they're able to continue to innovate and to work on meaningful outcomes, hopefully producing meaningful outcomes. But what they're often missing now are, you know, seeing the people below or in uh, deeper reporting structures, having that infrequent interaction. Of course, they might see them in a meeting, do a presentation, but uh, the opportunity for that, you know, bump into, I think it's a challenge right now. Yeah. And, and, you know, and obviously I think that this at least blended environment, it's not going away anytime soon. It was coming anyway, right? Right. I mean, in the Bay Area, I, I, I would say that there were many companies that were at a point where they were saying, you know, work from home 
two days a week and coming to yeah. campus three days a week. And I think that was shifting to more of the Bay Area was moving to consider your home, your primary workplace and come into campus two days a week. And that was something that was evolving anyway. I think that is true for areas like the Bay Area where corporate offices are located in places that make it economically not viable for sort of a mid-level and lower level employees to be on campus. And so maybe given that you you are in the Bay Area and you've seen some of this, what are some of the the techniques that, you know, some of these companies where the shift was happening before the pandemic that they can teach to companies that are dealing with this right now for the first, I mean, not right now, in the past two years for the first time? Well, what I think about, I hear from some of my clients now that they're going into the office to get on Zoom. I don't think that's unique to the Bay Area. I think that's happening in a lot of places. So you've inconvenienced yourself. You know, you've spent, let's uh, be generous. And let's say you spent 20 minutes on your commute or a half hour. You had a super reasonable commute. You're walking to the office. Yeah. So that's why this engagement about how do we engage others, particularly if we believe that trust is eroding in the workplace and if trust is at the foundation of productive, meaningful, inspiring, and relevant relationships, then what do we do? Because I wonder if there aren't legions of people out there after every Zoom meeting just going, (laughs) yeah. I mean, there's evidence for that in the startling numbers of people who are leaving and abandoning their jobs. Yeah. It's interesting. You mentioned a word that was like the other area, because I've heard you mention and go into this topic a number of times in your podcast happens. I know it's near and dear to your heart and I know sort of is a narrow expertise for you. So the, this idea of eroding trust, which I think it, it's very important. So when you look at eroding trust, what are you observing and are there things that managers and leaders can think about at least slowing down the erosion? Sure. At a personal level is get clear on your values and what's important to you. Secondly, on a Let's go, let's go to the, at another level is understand the organization, the organization's values. And, you know, it's just, I'm not the, it can be a, a, an organization of three people, two people, five people, 10 people, 10,000 people, but get some resonance with that because if there's no resonance with that, it's difficult to create, I believe, inclusive environments where people walk their talk, they follow a path towards authenticity. So, because we we have too many examples where what's on the walls doesn't filtrate to the halls. Think about Wells Fargo more recently with integrity. Think about what's gone on with executive compensation and payouts, even if your behavior is reprehensible. So, you know, lots to uh, consider there. So, first, at the personal level, your values. Second, what's the alignment with the organization's values? Could you identify them? And then thirdly, coming back to the interpersonal relationship and maybe entering that from a space of, I freely give you my trust as opposed to you need to earn it. Yeah. And they're right. That's an important part. The belief that you deserve to be loved. Yeah. And I don't say that quite easily given, you know, I'm an older, old white male, an older white male. I've talked about warmth. I've talked about affection. I rarely spoke of love in organizations and certainly it is one of our most powerful emotions and a way to maybe be provocative around the conversation of what it means to value others 
to not see them as an element of production, I think, as you so keenly observed, Dino, and rather to see the person first by saying hello. I love this thought. And I think it's a great point to wrap up our conversation around leadership and authenticity and to go to my next question, which is, what are your interests outside of your professional interests? And is there one that has affected how you think about work? Yes, I think more about beauty in work and how leaders lead beautifully or around the aesthetic of beauty and leading. That is, given some of my interests, that is something that is reshaping and affecting my world of work is to think about the aesthetics of beauty and leadership. And where does the interest in aesthetics manifest outside of work? What aesthetics are you passionate about? Uh In food, in fine art. Excellent. So this will go well with our last question. I'm going to my second to last question. You know, we live in an area in a time when every generation has its uh, share of business jargon, expressions, cliches. What are the ones that drive you crazy? What does it mean to ping someone? (laughs) (laughs) I hate that one. (laughs) Yeah, like, if he's like, oh, you're going to ping me? (laughs) I never thought about it. It's like being on the other end of being pinged may not necessarily be something good. (laughs) I love that. Yeah. There was a time at uh, maybe early on in Genentech. I was there for a while. And Art Levinson, who was the CEO... I think you can find this, uh, there's some internet lore around this. He had a game he called Buzzword Bingo. (laughs) (laughs) And Art, you know, who built a super successful company in uh, Genentech and the chairman at Apple and uh, as a member of the board at Google, I mean, has participated in some of the most successful launches in technology that we've seen in the world. Yeah, he had a... (laughs) you would play this game so that you would know not to say any of these words around him. And ping was one of them. And that, that was certainly one that stuck with me. Or I think another might've been um, a hitch back with that or something like that. Well, that's a great anecdote. (laughs) I love it. All right. Final question, which reconnects to your aesthetics. I call it food for your body or food for your soul. And you're welcome to pick both if you want, but what is one dish or drink that you go to as your, that inspires you, and then a activity, book, movie, song, painting, play, something that like has really inspired you. You can pick either one or you can go one food and one art thing. Oh, that's uh, a choice, but I do have a one go-to food that just inspires me everything, which is the truffle faux gras at Aquarello Restaurant (laughs) in San Francisco, made famous by uh, Chef Suzette Gresham. It's the ridged pasta with faux gras, black truffle. Just amazing. That that would be my go-to dish. Uh, Faux faux gras, black truffle, marsala, ridged pasta. (laughs) I think I need to come to San Francisco. (laughs) (laughs) I need that because my mouth is watering right now as Uh you're saying that. Yeah, that would be. And uh, we were lucky enough to go to Sorella this weekend. They just opened uh, another restaurant uh, not too far from Aquarello. That's fantastic. Well, Mike, 
It's been great to have you on the podcast. To our listeners, go out and check out Authentic Change with Mike Horn. He has a lot of great episodes. And, he, and if you enjoyed our conversation, I think that if Mike and I <laughs> have managed to successfully combine our planning, the episode where I'm the guest on his podcast will be the one that's live right now. Please check out Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. Yes. It's a great podcast. Dino has an amazing framework for thinking about authentic leadership for everyday people. Thank you. <laughs> All right, Mike, that was fantastic. It's great to have you on. Great. Thank you so much, Dino. Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, please tell a friend who may enjoy it that they should go and listen to it. And if you really like it, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Make sure you're subscribed on your favorite listening platform so you do not miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews like Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Podchasers, please leave us a good review and a good rating. As usual, stick around because at the end of the credits, I'm going to share another song by one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters, Susan Catania. As I mentioned at the top of the episode, this is half of a two-part conversation about leadership and authenticity. Check out the other half of Mike's podcast, Authentic Change. It is episode one of season two. You can find Mike and learn more about his work and his books on his website, mike-horn.com. And Horn is spelled H-O-R-N-E. You can find me online at al4ep.com with the number four. And you can email me at dino at al4ep.com. On Twitter and Instagram, look for at al4edp. And I am also on Facebook, Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced, and arranged by Nicolas Cattane, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Savarino on guitar and Jesse Williams on bass. As promised, here is a song by Susan Cattaneo. It's coming from her first album, which was called Brave and Wild, and it's kind of like a poppy, fun song called Love Takes What It Takes, Till It Takes. Enjoy!
ठे <laughs> 